1 Corinthians chapter 7, just the first two verses for our Bible study tonight. It says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, if that's the answer, you got to wonder what in the world was the question. <laughs> Nevertheless, verse 2, to avoid fornication, sexual contact outside of the marriage covenant, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. The, first, the book of 1 Corinthians divides into really two sections, and it's almost in half, though the first half is slightly smaller than the second. In the first half of the book or the letter, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church concerning things that are on his heart. He's heard word that there's divisions in the church. He's heard of sin that they are openly embracing that is a detriment to their future and their testimony and their witness for Christ within the world. And so he takes the first six chapters to address the concerns that he has and to adjust the course that the church is on that they might uh, fix those things and that their light might shine. But the second reason why Paul wrote the letter at all is because of a list of questions that they had written asking him, things that they could not find clarification on uh, in their midst, and they wanted the authority of the one who planted the church to address the things. And so from chapter 7 now all the way through until the end of the book, the Apostle Paul is going to address the questions that the Corinthians had for him. And the first question that they had concerns Christian marriage. And we don't know exactly what the question is, but we get the answer throughout all of chapter 7. And so we can all play Jeopardy and we can look at the answer and try to figure it out. What exactly is it that they were asking? And so we don't really know for sure. Did they say, uh, how in the world does this work? How in the world can we uh, live with another human being? What is, you know, what is the, the story with this? Or is monogamy for real? Is God for real? That it's one man and one woman for life? Or uh, we know that the Apostle Paul had written to them already that they were to not be in fornication, sexual contact. So they might have heard that and said, are you, are you for real? We're in Corinth. This is what we do. This is what we do for fun on the weekends. What do you mean? What, we need clarity on this. What in the world constitutes fornication? At what point is it, is it legit we can do this? And at what point isn't it? We don't know exactly what the question is. It could have been all of those things that was being answered in it. But what it is for you and I here tonight who uh, stand way on the other side of it, and we have clarity on a lot of those things, it's about marriage. It's about what is Christian marriage? What did God have intended for it? What is, was in his mind when he designed it and made it? And what's it for? And, and what's his purpose in it? And he's very specific about what it is and how it's supposed to work. Why? Why does it have to be that way? What was in God's mind? And most of all, as we go through this chapter, the answer to the question, how in the world... Do you make it work? Because if you're married here tonight, or if you know someone who's married, you know it's not as easy as sometimes it might look 
or as sometimes you might think that it is, what in the world is the story with marriage? Now, what I propose to you right at the outset of this uh, study, this mini-series between this week and next week, calling it Marriage Matters, um, one of the uh, things about marriage that, 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 that I realized in this is that marriage is a lot like a smartphone. How many of you, by show of hands here tonight, have a smartphone? It doesn't matter what brand or operating system it has. Almost every one of us uh, in today's day and age have a smartphone. If not, we know someone who has a smartphone. And I find that marriage is a lot like a smartphone, and it's like this. We know somewhere deep down inside that it can do a lot of things and that it has a lot of purposes, but we really don't know what any of them are. <laughs> I don't know if you're like me, but you use the phone, the text, the camera, and the GPS, right? <laughs> and that's about it. You know, we, we, we know that the phone can do so much more. It was made to do so many more things, but we have our, our four or five or maybe six things that we do with it. And then beyond that, we, we don't have a clue what the thing does. And I believe that Christian marriage, or marriage in general, when we look at it in the context of what God intended it to be and what it is, most of us have barely scratched the surface. And I believe that's true about almost everything that God made. I think it's true about creation itself. I believe it's true about man. I believe it's true about a soul. I believe it's true about every system that God has made. I believe even to the simple cell or the smallest organism, to the largest of them, I think that we, we in our finite minds, have such a small, little understanding of it all. And I love the verse in Job. I can't remember exactly where it is in the book, but uh, wherein Job is kind of trying to communicate to his friends how big God is. And he describes these incredibly vast things that we have no concept of and then he concludes it by saying, and these are but the mere edges of his ways. And everything that God makes goes so much further and so much deeper than we can comprehend or understand. And certainly that is true of marriage. And my prayer for us, and, and I pray it for myself, is that none of us that are married would miss out on all the glory that God intended marriage to be. It was in his mind. He made it. And everything that he makes is good. And everything that he makes serves a purpose. And so I pray that we wouldn't come behind in it and simply survive in it or last but not experience the glory and the goodness that God intends for it. And so what I want to do tonight as kind of a preface for going through the chapter is just talk a little bit in a topical setting more so about what exactly God had in his mind when he made marriage. That's a question that Paul doesn't answer within the chapter. He answers how, the, how we're to stay in it. And he tells us that one of the reasons for it is that we would avoid fornication. We read that right in the onset, right in verse 1, that we, verses 1 and 2, that we would avoid fornication. But, but what in the world is God's mind behind marriage? And if we have an understanding of that, then as we move through the chapter... And hear what Paul has to say about how to survive in marriage, then it will make sense to us the more so. It will add understanding to us. Now, uh, let me say one more thing by way of prefacing the content of tonight's study. I know already for a fact that to try to tackle a concept as big as marriage in a 45 or 50 minute Bible study is, is, a, is a huge undertaking. 
and, and I just want to say to you right now at the onsite that I already know that I'm painting with a broom and not a fine brush and, and that I'm going to miss a lot of things, that I'm not going to say a, lo a lot of things tonight. And that's the reason why. But with the time that I have, uh, as much as I can, I'd love to uh, share with you from at least my understanding of the scripture and my understanding of marriage, because I've been married. In fact, tomorrow's my anniversary. It'll be 16 years. Please don't clap. 16 years is no, is no milestone. <laughs> if it was 15, you could clap, but you can't clap for 16. You know? <laughs> Got to wait till I get to 20. But why did God make marriage? I'm going to give you four reasons for it in it. And the first one, if you're taking notes tonight, the first reason why God made marriage and gave it to us as something that we would experience and enjoy is very simply for the sake of relationship and companionship. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, in the very beginning when God first created all things, it tells us there, it says that the Lord God said that it is not good that the man should be alone, that I will make a help or make him a help that is meet for him or fitting for him. And so out of the ground, it says that the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and he brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a help meet for him. Now follow the progression of how this is revealed. First of all, God sees that man has a need. Then secondarily in verses 19 and 20, God makes man aware of the need that he has. And it happens in that order. And then the marriage in verse 21. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Therefore, she shall be called woman. And, and where that actually comes from is that the first thing Adam said when he laid eyes upon her was, whoa, man. <laughs> No. <laughs> the first thing Adam said was, oh, never mind. He's, the first thing Adam said after talking to the woman to God was, God, what's a headache? <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> it's New Year's. We're going to have a little fun, right? <laughs> Therefore... Verse 24, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. And so the nature of the relationship and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. And so the very foundation of the marriage that God created was based upon the premise that God looked at man and he said that it is not good that man should be alone and then he made uh, Adam aware of that and then God brought the um, brought the, the woman to the man now the thing that interests me about this uh, mostly is that this is prior to the fall of man and so Adam in the state that he's in here in this text he is complete 
He is lacking nothing. He hasn't sinned. He hasn't fallen. He has no internal hunger. There's nothing that, he, that he's lacking or missing. He is complete and whole in and of himself. And yet in that state, we find that he has a need. And we would think, oh my, you know, we, we don't ever associate that, that fallen man would have no need. And I believe that in this, there's a reflection of man being made in the image of God himself. Because we know and understand that God is perfect, whole, and complete. He lacks nothing. He doesn't need anything. In fact, one of his names is that he's the all-sufficient one in and of himself. He needs absolutely nothing. But yet when we ask the question, why did God create man in the first place? The answer that we conclude is that he made man for fellowship within himself. And that even though God was complete and whole and needed nothing, God had a longing for a being that he could create wherein he could relate to that being in the covenant of love. And love, of course, requires and demands choice. If it's robotic, if we're programmed to do something, then it cannot be love. It's something that we've been made to do. And the angels, they were made. They have, they're, they're commanded. They obey. But man is different. And so we see even in the marriage covenant, the creation of it, we see reflection of the reason why God made man in the first place. He made us for fellowship with himself. And so man, even in his non-fallen state, was lonely and had a longing given to him by God to be in fellowship with someone who would be a completer before him. Now, the nature of that relationship is that it would be a relationship that's based on cleaving. We saw that there back at the end of chapter two, that a man shall leave his father and mother, he shall cleave unto his wife, and they too shall become one. And so the nature of the relationship that God made marriage to be is that of two becoming one to a point where not only are they inseparable, but they are so conjoined that there is absolutely no space that exists between the man and his wife. There is nothing that can come between that relationship. That's what it means to cleave to something. It means that it is stuck together with no air gap. And there are only two relationships in all of existence that we are called to have cleave-type relationships. Number one is our relationship with God. We are called to cleave to Him. No space between us and God. And number two, our spouse. And so the marriage relationship is to be a relationship that is sanctified and set apart from every other relationship that, that it is possible for us to have on a horizontal plane. It is intimate, it is singular, it is sanctified, it is holy. And I'll use that word associated with it and attached to it. And what that means is that every other relationship that we would have within our lives must take a distant second to the, re the marriage relationship. That's why or how God designed it. That means our relationship to our parents must be far distant. It says that a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. Even the children in a relationship, even the friendships that can attach themselves to us as we grow through our life that maybe go back further than the time that we met our spouse. Even the um, things in our lives that we relate to that maybe aren't even human things, but we very much have a relationship with them, hobbies and activities and passions and things that drive us and make us who we are. All things must take a distant second to that relationship if 
We're going to get out of it all that God designed when he made it. And the reason for that is that God wanted us to know human fellowship on a deep and intimate level, and there was no other way for it to happen other than on the intimate plane. Uh, interesting thing. And so God made it for the sake of relationship and companionship. The second reason why God made marriage or the purpose of marriage is that it might be a reflection of the image of God and a visible representation of that uh, um, uh, Godhead to a lost and dying world. If you turn, if you were in Genesis, it's going to come up on the screen, but you'll want to remember these verses. It's Genesis chapter five, verses one and two. And it's a very interesting uh, uh, wording. If you look at it, it'll come up. It says this, it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that God created man. And so man is singular. Adam was singular. Adam is, means man. It says in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them, and he blessed them, and he called their name Adam. See that? Their name, their is plural, name is singular, Adam is singular, in the day that they were created. Now, that's two verses, and it's two sentences, but it says a whole lot. Because what it tells us there, it tells us basically three things. It tells us, first of all, that man... And that's Adam, that's human, was made in the image of God. That's number one that's told to us right there. And we understand that. We know that the Bible is very clear. We're made in his image. But then it tells us in verse two that God took that man, singular, that was made in his image, and he divided it into two separate entities. That is the male and the female. So God took the man that was singularly made in his image and he divided it into two, that is male and female. And then the third thing that it tells us at the end of that passage is that he put the two together in the covenant of marriage and he called their name singular Adam. So one man made in the image of God divided into two separate entities then unified as one again and called man. You say, what in the world is the significance of that? Here's what it is. It's that when God made the man and then divided him into two, what God effectively did is that he took something out of the man and with it, he made the woman. He did not form the woman from the dust of the ground like he did the man. He formed the woman from something that was taken out of the man. And with that, he made the woman. And when God removed a rib from Adam's side, he took with that rib something else also that was intangible and invisible and indescribable. And what that something was is the nature that was given to the female. Now, I don't know if you know this, but men and women are different. And men and women are different by design. We're not only different in the physical, that is the way that we look, but we are also different in the mental and the spiritual, the way that we feel, the way that we think, the way that we process information, the things that we were designed to do. There is an absolute separation in gender between the male and the female. And prior to Eve's formation, Adam possessed the entirety of that wholeness in and of himself. So he was the masculine and the feminine all unified in one, 
before Eve was taken out of the man. But it's when the two now are now reconjoined and unified in marriage and in cleaving and in covenant before God and sealed by his Holy Spirit that now what you have in the two becoming one is the image of God that he intended to be a witness to the world around him. And so man in the image of God is demonstrated in the world by the uniting of the male and the female in one in the covenant of marriage. Now, interestingly, that automatically becomes a reflection or a representation or a witness to the Holy Trinity. And here's why. Because the triune Godhead, which is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that are three in one, one God, but three distinct persons, a mystery, we don't fully understand it. But that is reflected in the marriage relationship. And here's how. You have the man, you have the woman that are then unified by the Spirit of God. And so man is linked to God by his Holy Spirit. And that relationship becomes a witness of who God is to the world. And so God made marriage as a witness in creation to creation of himself in the creation of man. That is why, by the way, and notice the word why, it's an important word, why homosexuality is an abomination to God. It isn't because it's against a preference that God has. It's because it's a pollution to his very nature, which he made man in the image of and then designed the relationship between a man and a woman to be a witness for himself. It pollutes the very nature of God. And that is why it's an abomination. That's important that we understand that when people ask us the question, isn't it? That it isn't just because God doesn't like it. It's a pollution of his name. There is two things in the world. There is that which is holy and that which is not. And there is only one thing that is holy, and that is God. And when you pollute the person of God, you have taken the only thing that exists that is truly holy, and you've corrupted it. And that is an abomination no matter how you do it. And that's the reason why. It's a representation of God to the world that is the covenant of marriage. And that's important that we understand uh, that. It's also a representation and a witness for God, uh, marriages, in, in what marriage does. I mean, if you think about it, there is one relationship wherein God gives not, not just permission, but he actually sanctions uh, the sexual union. And it's, it's within a marriage. And that sexual union that is designed to take place between one man and one woman in a covenant of marriage until death do us part, and that is the only proper and allowable context for it. Within that, there's great latitude, but that, that boundary is important. And the reason why it's important is because that union represents the very life-giving power of God. Think about it. In sexual union... The seed of the man penetrates the woman and is planted deep inside in a place where no one can see. There it fertilizes an egg that has been awaiting something to happen within it. There's an egg that's there for a reason, but why? And it doesn't make sense until that seed comes and hits it. The seed then penetrates the egg and in the deepest place where no one can see and no one even knows it's happening, new life is forming. And it comes to a point where the new life is given. It's the exact very thing that the gospel represents within the world. The seed of God's word comes into the life of a human being. It fertilizes there's something inside that's there that we don't even know why. And it doesn't make sense until the word of God hits it. 
And then the word of God fertilizes it and something begins to grow inside until the point that we're born again because that seed germinates and it brings forth faith within our lives. And the new birth is made. And so marriage on every level is a reflection and a representation of who God is and his very relationship with man in general. And so it's a sanctified, holy thing. Marriage is made to be a reflection of the image of God and a visible representation of the same within creation. The third reason why God made marriage, and this is where it starts to get really fun and real practical and real painful, is that marriage is designed by God to be a source of refinement and shaping for our lives. Now, I don't know if you know this, but God is on a relentless quest to form the person of Christ within each one of our lives. Did you know that? When we're born into this world, we come as blank hard drives. I mean, we have some DNA and some, some, you know, some things that are going to come out as we grow and develop, but we come out with nothing. And especially after the fall, we come out with a negative because we have a sin nature and we're destined for corruption, children of hell. The Bible says sons of disobedience driven by the devil to do his will. That's what we're born into this world to be. And by God's grace, at some miraculous point in the whole thing, we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we're born again by the Spirit of God. And God now takes up this relentless quest of crucifying the old man according to its former lusts and forming within us the character and the nature of Jesus Christ. And God has many ways wherein he brings that work to bear upon us. But one of them, and one of the most important ones, is through our spouse. (laughs) <laughs> I know, it's funny, isn't it? In 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 1, Peter writes and he says this. He says, Wherefore, speaking to newborn Christians, laying aside all malice, that's evil, and all guile, that's another form of liquid evil that just exists within us, and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you might grow thereby. If so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And so right off the bat, Peter is saying, you need to change. You're born again now, and you're not born again so that you can stay the same as what you were prior to your coming to Christ. So lay aside all of those old things and as newborn babes in Christ now desire the sincere milk of the word so that you might grow in the new man and know who Jesus Christ is. If so be that you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now watch this in verse four. He says to whom coming that is that we've come to Christ as unto a living stone. We have come to Jesus as it were, as though he was a stone, but it's a stone that's alive. And it's the kind of stone that you would use to build a structure, like the stones that they used to build the temple. Disallowed or rejected indeed by men, as Jesus often is rejected by man, but chosen of God and precious. You also, watch this, as living stones are built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now watch what Peter is saying here. He's saying that if we're going to look at our lives and we're going to allegorize them and compare them to the building of a temple made with stones, first of all, we are rough cut. 
And so we come into the kingdom with all kinds of malice, all kinds of guile, all kinds of hypocrisies, evil speakings, all kind of nasty evil within our lives. We're rough cut right out of the quarry when we first come to Christ. And he says that God's goal in all of this is now to cut away all of those things that don't belong within our lives for the purpose of finding a fitting place for us in his house. That is what makes up his house wherein he is going to dwell or live in himself. He himself is a living stone, the cornerstone, the stone by which every other stone in the whole structure is measured and cut and, and, and placed according to. And he says, you now are living stones and you're going to be placed in this temple, this place where Jesus himself is going to live. But there's shaping that has to take place within your life. Now, it's an interesting thing, but did you know that when they built the temple on the Temple Mount, it was strictly forbidden for any tool, shaping tool, to be used on the stones once they were brought to the Temple Mount. All of the cutting, all of the shaping, all of the preparation had to be made in the quarry so that by the stone time the stones were brought to the Temple Mount, they were perfectly fit one upon another and the place would just go up in silence, absolute silence, because of the sanctity of what that place was and what it represented. So what does that have to do with us and what does it have to do with marriage? We are living stones. And part of what God is doing while we are here on this earth is that he is cutting away the things that don't belong. And one of the tools that God loves to use in order to make that happen is another stone. Because he loves it when the stones fit together just right and just perfectly. And did you know that there are no better way, there is no better way to have two stones fit together perfectly than to rub them together until they fit together perfectly? There's one problem with that. It's very annoying to rub up against another stone, isn't it? When that rubbing means that things are being ground out of your life that maybe you're not so pleased about having them ground out of your life. I think that God has a sense of humor. I know God has a sense of humor, but one of the things that I think God likes to do, it, it's, it's, it's something that he's put into little kids. I remember when I was a kid, remember those, um, those little Japanese fighting fish, the betas, and you, you know, the blue things with the fins, they're very independent. They don't like other fish. And so if you put them in, a, in an aquarium with another beta, they'll fight until one of them's dead. And, and I used to do that. I'd look both ways and I'd take my brother's fish, I'd take my fish, I'd put them in the thing and watch, you know. And I think one of the things that God absolutely loves to do is he loves to take a type A personality and then another type A personality and watch him get married. <laughs> and, and what he does is he just goes, hey, Gabe, Gabriel, come here, watch this. Look at this. Look, they're walking down the aisle. This is going to be great. Watch. Watch what happens once these two people realize what it is that they've just done. <laughs> and, and, and they're Christians, so they're going to hang in there and, and just watch and see. This is refinement in action. This is going to be great. And then those two type A's, they get married and the bliss of the, that first day uh, wears off. And the very second day, that just uh, doesn't take long, just day two, day two, day two, the, the woman or the man <laughs> walks into the bathroom and the toilet paper is going over the top and not under the bottom. <laughs> And the grinding begins right there, right, right there, right off the bat and how, how that's going to be done, you know, and, and it's an amazing thing that can happen when God puts two people together 
And he watches to see the refinement that's going to take place within those two lives. And, you know, I laugh at that, um, and, and, and I'm so thankful. My wife and I, we are both B. And I didn't know what any of these things were. In fact, I still don't. If you came up after and you said, what's a B? I would just say, I'm a B, whatever I am. That's what I am. I'm not an A. I know what an A is. I'm not an A. And my wife's not an A, and I thank God for that. <laughs> you know. But I, I think, personally, I think that when you have two A's, you have the potential to have a stronger marriage than any other situation. Be, just because of the amount of rubbing <laughs> and conflict and growing and grace and mercy that has to be in that marriage. And there is something so classic about it. Uh, I have so much more to say on that, but I want to move on to number three. I'll give you uh, a hint if you want to read up on this a little bit more. One of my favorite stories that, that just so beautifully represents this is the picture of Jacob and Leah. If you recall, Jacob wasn't supposed to marry Leah. He was supposed to marry Rachel. He wanted Rachel. He worked for Rachel. He agreed for Rachel. Everything was about Rachel. Even until, even until the time that she died, it was Rachel, 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 Rachel. But Laban pulled a fast one and he, he snuck Leah into the tent after dark. And once it was consummated in that culture, it was consummated. And Jacob ended up with two wives. He had a Rachel and a Leah. And Jacob and Leah was a constant problem. It was a constant problem. There was constant fighting over, over so much in, in that relationship. But the amazing thing was this, is that when Jacob died and everything had gone through in his whole life and he could reflect and look at it all, and his son said, what do you want us to do with your bones? He said, bury me next to Leah. She was the one. She was the one. She was the one that God ordained for me. And it would be through her that Christ would come. Judah was the firstborn of Leah. And listen, you in a marriage who you think this grinding is absolutely killing me, understand this. If you hang in there and you let that grinding have its perfect work within your life, you will come to a point one day where you will say, I never thought it could happen, but you have brought forth Christ in my life in a beautiful way. God intends marriage to be a place of refinement and shaping. Number four, and finally, Marriage is designed by God to be for us an opportunity. And that's an important word. It's an opportunity. It's not a guarantee. It's an opportunity for us to understand and also to give and receive agape love. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Are you speaking Greek? Yes, (laughs) I am. In the New Testament, there are four Greek words that are all translated love in the English. We're very generic about love in our, in our language. We say that we love ice cream. We say that we love our cars. And we say that we love our wives. There's a problem with that. <laughs> because if we're using the same word to describe the way we feel about our food and the way that we feel about our spouse, there's either a big problem with our marriage or a big problem with our definition. But in the Greek language, they divided it up a little bit more. They had the word storge, which was a friendship kind of a love. It was an affection that you would have for a person when there's a connection. You know what it's like when you just have a camaraderie with someone. That would be storge in the Greek language. But we would translate it love. Another word that they would use is the word phileo. And it would represent brotherly love. It's where we get the word Philadelphia. And it's the city of brotherly love. And so phileo is like a familial type of love, like a love that you would have for someone in your family or your extended family. 
The third word that they would use is the word eros, and it's where we get the English word erotic, and it speaks of passionate, sensual, physical type of love or love making, we would say. That's uh, eros in the Greek, you know, like that, that word. But then the fourth word is the word agapeo or agape. And what agape love is, is a totally separate kind of love that rises far above all of the others. Agape means unconditional, uncompromising, relentless love by choice. That's what agape love is. Unconditional, uncompromising, relentless love by choice. And that is the word that is always used exclusively to describe the type of love that God has towards us. In Romans chapter 5, it says, God commends or demonstrates his love, agape, towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is that the love that God was demonstrating through the death of Christ upon a cross was a love that is unconditional, uncompromising, relentless, and by his choice. He chose to do that for us. That's agape love. John chapter 3, verse 16, that verse that all of us know by heart, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That word love that's used in that verse is the word agape, that when God loved you and when God saved you according to that love and accepted your plea for his salvation, it was out of unconditional, uncompromising, relentless love. Now, there is nothing in all of existence that is richer, that is better, that is more valuable than that invisible substance that we would call agape love. It is dangerous, but it is unbelievably precious and powerful. And the difference between agape love and every other form of love, no matter how great or small it is, the difference is this, is that agape love is a love that's based on a choice and not necessarily upon a feeling. It's a love that is unconditional and uncompromising because I am choosing to love you with unconditional and uncompromising love regardless of how I feel about it. And agape is certainly that type of love, the love that God has for us. It's the love that drove him to the cross uh, it's the love that drove him to create us and, and it's the love that drove him to redeem us and it's the love that represents his inexhaustible patience with us. Why he doesn't leave us, why he doesn't forsake us. It's because he has an unconditional, uncompromising, relentless love for us that is according to his choice. And listen, for God to love you and I, it has to be by choice because there is nothing in us that could ever solicit or earn or deserve that kind of a love from anyone. And yet God promises that kind of love towards us. You say, well, what does that have to do with marriage? Marriage gives you and I an opportunity to know what it's like to live with another human being and to love on that level, uncompromising, unconditional, relentless love by choice. In God's wisdom, he wanted us to know what it's like to be invested in someone that way. And so what God did is that he gave each one of us that are married here tonight, or those that will be married, he gave each one of us our own sinner. 
That's what he did. One of the things, my wife and I joke about it all the time, that, that, that my, our first pastor used to say when he was talking about this concept of marriage. He would say, do you know what the biggest problem with marriages is? Is that, you, you, is that each person married a sinner. You know, and he would just say that over and over and over again. You know, and, and it, it, it actually struck a chord with us. We got it. We understood. He gave us a sinner and then he gave us a command. He said, love them. And love them unconditionally. Love them with agape love. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 32, defines this for us in the context of biblical marriage. And it gives to us one of the most challenging and yet revealing things about marriage that there is in all of our understanding. Notice what Paul writes in, in Ephesians 5.25. He says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, yes, he is addressing husbands' love toward their wives, but we don't have to, to, to build that wall because the Bible clearly says that we're to have fervent love one for another and that the love within a marriage is reciprocated and it's agape love. But he defines the type of love that we're to have towards our spouse as being the same type of love that Christ has for the church. So that is the same type of love that God has for his people is the type of love that we're to have for our spouse. That's agape love. He says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That's the way Christ sees us, holy and without blemish because of his agape love. So ought men to love their wives even as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it even as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause, quoting now Genesis 2, shall a man leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Now here's our verse, verse 32. He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now what's the point? The point is this, is that marriage is to be for you and I a workshop wherein you and I can experience what it's like to love a sinner in the way that God loves a sinner and also then to experience the glory that that relationship affords and gives to a person. And so the question is that we would all have is how in the world then does Christ love the church? Well, it tells us, first of all, that it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. Now, let me explain how Christ loved the church, then let me apply it to marriage. But what that means is that when Christ died for the church, what he did in dying for the church is that he removed all prerequisites for the relationship. Now, do you understand that according to the Old Testament law, there was a requirement attached to a relationship with God? If you wanted to come into a relationship with God, it means that you had to be perfect and keep the law. That if you didn't look and act and be exactly what God wanted you to be, then you could not be in a relationship with him. But by Jesus dying on the cross, what he did is he effectively removed every requirement that was attached to a relationship with God. And he said, come as you are. That's what the cross declared. He said, you can come as you are. And my love for you 
is going to trump the requirement that I have of you. And for the sake of relationship, I'm going to remove requirement. That's what he did. That's how Jesus loved us in, in this whole thing. That means that he accepted us as we were and not as what he wanted us to be. That's what it means. It means that he accepted us as sinners and as defiled. Now, before you go on thinking, well, that's exactly what I've been waiting for a preacher to say, that I can just be who I am and there's no change and I can just, God just loves me just the way I am. Yes, God loves you just the way you are. He ain't going to leave you that way. We'll get to that in a minute. But what it also means that Christ loved the church, it means that he is with us and that he is for us and that he loves us in spite of our progress or our lack of progress in our sanctification or in our being made like him. He removes all pressure concerning the process of us being made more like him in his image. He loves us in spite of those things. It means that he is exhaustively patient with our weaknesses because love endures all things. It means that he is aware, listen, he's aware that there are some things about us that are not going to change here on earth, not until we get to heaven, and he loves us in spite of those things that are not going to change about us while we are yet here on earth. He does not place contingencies upon the love that he has for us. Now let's apply that to marriage. If he says that we're to love our spouse the way that Christ loved the church, then that means that that love requires that we remove all prerequisites from the relationship. Now, what happens when a man and a woman get married? The first thing that happens after they've been married a week or two or a year is that they start to discover all the things about their spouse that they want to change. These are the things I don't like about you, and we're going to work on these things one by one. But what happens once that once those things are built into a relationship is that they become conditions upon my love. Well, I would love you more if you were more this way. I would love you more if you didn't do that so much. I would love you more. And you can, you can put whatever you want within that list. You can just put, take your own marriage right now and you can think about your spouse and the things about your spouse that, that you've discovered that you don't like, that if you had a light switch, you would just change those things as quickly as you can. If you're going to love your spouse like Christ loved the church, it means that you must choose to remove every single one of those requirements and your love is not conditioned on any of those changes. Meaning that if those changes never come, then that's not going to affect the way that I love you or my commitment to you or my passion for you. I choose to love you in spite of any of those things, even if it means that for the rest of our marriage, some of those things are never going to change. Now, if Jesus loves me the way that I am, then why does he want to change me? Isn't that a good question? Think about it. I mean, we have that with our spouses, right? When we realize that there's things about us that they want changed. Well, you love me. Don't you love me just the way I am? If Jesus loves me just the way that I am, then why does he want to change me? Listen, this is where it gets real hard. Because in a minute, it's going to be, you're going to just leave. You're going to say, I can't do this. I can't do the marriage thing. It's absolutely impossible. Listen, 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 listen. Let this search you. The change that Jesus wants to produce in your life and in mine 
is 100% for our benefit and 0% for his. Meaning that the reason why he wants us changed is not for his sake. It's not because he says, I'll love you more if you're this way. It's because he says, I know what life is. I'm the author of it. I've perfected it. I am it. It's my very essence. And I know what death is. And I know that the things that I'm going to produce in your life in change are going to be for your benefit and not my own. Now, let me ask you this question and let it search you. Those things about your spouse that you want to change. Why? Why do you want to change them? Think about it. If you're honest, if I'm honest, most of the time, the reason why we want to change those things is selfish, isn't it? It's because it will affect us in a positive way. It will serve us in a particular way. Now, granted, I know, again, this is where I'm painting with a broom. because You'd say, there are things about my spouse that if they don't change, I don't know if I'm going to survive. And that's different. It's a little bit different. You know, we pray for those things and, and we hope for God to, to, to work in it. But you understand what's, what's at stake here, what he's talking about. Why do you want it? Why do you want the change to take place within uh, the life? And that's where now it becomes extremely otherworldly. Now, where does it all lead? It leads me to a realization that it is absolutely impossible for me to love my wife like Christ loved the church. It's impossible for you to love your spouse with agape love. And what that means is that you're going to have to receive power to do that from another source. Where is that source? The source comes from God. In, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, there's a powerful passage on marriage. I'm sure you'll see it quoted on wedding invitations or programs at weddings, but it says this. It says that if two lie together, they have heat. That's pretty much it. He says, if one's alone, there's no one to help them. If two are together, then they have a better reward for their labor. But then it says this, that a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And when a Christian man and a Christian woman enter into the covenant of marriage and they make an agape commitment to love one another till death do us part, and then by careful cultivation of their own relationship with God in cleaving to him, they ask him for supernatural power and love to love their spouse the way that he loves the church, he alone can provide that power. And when you and I, as Christians, remove the pressure on our spouse, the feeling that they need to change or be different than what they are, an amazing thing happens. Love happens. The Bible says that we love him because he first loved us, doesn't it? He agapes us and therefore we respond in love for him. And when we love our spouses that way, the response is love back. And you know what happens then? Change happens then because two become one. It doesn't mean that they exclusively change to become what I want them to be. It means that both of us change and we grow into the image of Christ and there's an incredible harmony as the living stones now fit together and the dynamic of the agape love that exists within the marriage is unbelievably good. And I believe that every one of us here in this room, myself included, have barely scratched the surface of how good it can be and how good God wants it to be. But he provided marriage as a place where we would have the opportunity to understand what agape love is. And it's not easy, it's dangerous. And that we might enjoy it in both the giving of it and the receiving of it on a human level. Now next week, as we get into the text and the worship team can come as we kind of conclude tonight. Next week, 
The obvious question that remains at the end of all of this, realizing the purpose of marriage, is how in the world do you hang in there? And that's a good question. That's a question that Paul's going to answer as we move forward through uh, the rest of chapter 7. But tonight, if I could leave you with one thing, it would be this. Is that God loves you with such a relentless love. And that he can do and is doing and will do within your life things that you could never do or expect or create within yourself. And all of that is the outcome of his love. He knows how to change us. The Bible says that he ever lives to make intercession for us. He removes all pressure. That's what grace does. And then he prays for us. He leaves for us an example. And he waits for us to come into harmony with who he is and to say, yes, Lord, you're right about that, whatever that that is for each one of us. And when we say, Lord, I'm submitted to your ways, then the power of the Holy Spirit comes in and he can make those changes within us to make us more like Jesus Christ. He has an incredible love and he gives to us in that love an example of how we're to love our wives like Christ loved the church. And it's a powerful, powerful thing. Read ahead next week, uh, the, the remainder of chapter seven as Paul gets into it. But may God give to us understanding and may we see a little bit more of the beauty and the dynamic of what marriage is. Father, we thank you, Lord, tonight for this um, time that we could share together and uh, to explore your ways, Lord, and to explore your wisdom and how you've made all things and put them together. And we pray, Father, tonight, Lord, for each of us here, those that are married, I pray that there would be a strengthening in the bond. I pray, Lord, that where maybe there's been uh, a putting of things aside and the marriage has just become a partnership or uh, there's, a, there's a sense that there's just glorified roommates or, or where there's pain, Father, or where there's been injury or defilement that's been brought in by uh, whatever the world brings or whatever our selfishness brings. Lord, we pray tonight that your Holy Spirit would revive again that which you made. That, Lord, in our heart of hearts, you would hear the vows again that we've proclaimed before you. And that, God, our marriages would be in a lost world a reflection of your person. You made us in your image, God, that our marriages would represent that. Lord, that we would be refined, that we would be changed in our heart of hearts, and that we would know, Lord, what is this thing called love? The world can't touch it. It comes from you. It's the very essence of what you are. And it's our desire, Lord, that we would live in it, that it would bathe our homes. So help us, Lord Jesus, revive and renew. For those that are here tonight, Lord, that maybe are not married, maybe on the other side of a horrible experience, or maybe on the front side waiting for that spouse, aware of their need like Adam was, I pray, Lord Jesus, in your name that you would be the completer for all those that lack and that there would be a cleaving to you, Lord, that would be so satisfying, so enriching, and so real that the contentment would be clear. Lord, only you can do it. And we ask that you would. So hear us tonight, Lord, from this fallen side of creation, calling out to a Father who sees all things and knows all things and can do all things, that you would be the Lord in our lives and in our marriages and for our children. And we ask these things tonight in Jesus' precious name. Amen.